Welcome to Inspirational Tales. When my guests on this podcast experience the most challenging times of their lives, they use these hardships to learn, grow and better themselves. And as a result, they are now thriving in life. Their stories are ones of resilience, strength and overcoming adversity. So sit back and join me as we celebrate them turning their challenges into triumphs. My guest on this episode is Jordan Thomas, who joined me from his hometown of Nashville, Tennessee in the US. When Jordan was 16 years old, he was involved in a boating accident and had to have both of his legs amputated below the knee. Whilst Jordan was in hospital recovering from his surgery, he began to notice that many of the children in the hospital were not as privileged as he was and would not be able to afford the exorbitant cost of paying for new and ongoing prosthetics. He was there in the hospital at only 16 years of age and recovering from his own legs being amputated that Jordan started the Jordan Thomas Foundation. The Jordan Thomas Foundation provides children with prosthetics until they turn 18 years old and has so far helped over 100 children worldwide. Jordan is an extraordinary person who has used his own extremely challenging experience to help many children and carry out what he calls his life purpose. He is so humble, kind and wise beyond his years and even though in our chat he discussed some incredibly difficult times in his life, I walked away feeling so uplifted and I hope you do too. Hi Jordan, thank you so much for joining me on the show today. How are you? I'm well, so glad to be here. Thanks for having me. Not a problem at all. So on this podcast, I speak to people about how they've managed to overcome some of the challenges that they've faced in their lives. And obviously, when you were 16 years old, you were involved in an accident, a very serious accident that resulted in you having to have both of your legs amputated. And we will talk about that a bit later. But I'd like to start off by asking you if you could please explain to us a bit about what you were like before the accident. So what was your childhood like? What were you like growing up and who was Jordan Thomas before the accident? Yeah, that's a good question. I, you know, for me, I had a pretty idyllic childhood, to be honest with you. I grew up in a place of privilege and I'm fully aware of the privilege that I grew up with. What's important though, is that my parents kind of instilled in me this idea of kind of service and being in recognizing how lucky I was to be in the family that I was born into. And so there was always kind of this service mentality that I grew up with that was just instilled in me as a kid. So I always had that kind of focus on service, but then I was also just kind of a rambunctious, happy-go-lucky kid, right? I mean, I, you know, I uh, was really athletic, played a lot of sports. That was really where I derived a lot of joy as a kid was um, athletically. And I'm the youngest of three boys. So I was kind of this athletic little brother, uh, outgoing kid that was just happy-go-lucky. And I guess I had this idea of invincibility, you know, and so my world took a drastic turn in 2005 uh, when I was hit by the boat. But, you know, leading up to that point, I, I can't really point to any trauma or, or major points of grief that, that I had to contend with. I'm, I'm very, very lucky and recognize the privilege like in that. So both of your parents are doctors. Did you want to follow in their footsteps or did you have any idea what you wanted to do as you got older? I never, ever, ever considered following in their footsteps. No, oh. <laughs> you know, yeah, it, it's wild. People think that maybe that was a thing. I, no, I think uh, I kind of saw how the sausage was made, so to speak, right? Like I saw, I saw how much my parents sacrificed um, and how much they had to give of themselves um, and how much they had to give up and sacrifice, you know, with their family. So there was really no appeal to follow and, and go into medicine for me. Never, never. Did you have any idea what you wanted to do? Uh, no, like I just kind of chucked it in life, you know, I just sort of like, I sort of like, let's, we'll cross that bridge when we get there. We'll, we'll figure it out later down the road. 
it, not until about maybe like a year and a half ago did I really know what I want to do in my life. And I'm 32 years old. So it took me a long time. I didn't have that. I'm in a way uh, a bit envious of people that have very clear sort of paths that they, you know, at age six, they know they want to be a marine biologist. So they go study that. And, you know, they like do all that stuff. I didn't have that. I had like, eh, we'll figure it out when we get there. And so, no, I, I didn't ever, I didn't have a clue as a kid. Okay. So when you were 16, you did have that accident. So can you take us back to that day and explain to us what happened, please? Yeah. So it was, a, I was in the Florida Keys here in the States, uh, about seven miles off the coast. And I was going to go spear fishing with my dad. I had recently been certified to scuba, to scuba dive. So I was this really impatient 16 year old kid. Like I, I put my gear on first. As soon as, as soon as we got there, I put my gear on and I was ready to go. And so I was with my dad and my mom. I dove into the water and I was on the surface floating. And I, the waves were massive that day. And so I was being pushed away from the boat. And then suddenly I realized that I was getting closer and closer to the boat. So the swales had kind of switched direction and were pushing me towards the boat. My mom was, was at the wheel of the, the boat and recognized that I was getting closer and closer. And she didn't want the boat to come down on my head because I was floating on the surface and the boat was rocking side to side. So she made that decision in an instant to move the boat. She thought that was the best decision to keep me safe. And I remember hearing the roar of the engine and I looked up and I was underneath the boat and I felt the sharp pain in my legs. And I knew pretty much like I knew just from kind of the sound and that sensation that something really bad had happened. I didn't know what at this point, but I knew it was bad. And so um, the boat's going away from me. I'm bobbing on the surface and I looked down and saw that my fins, I'd had fins on, black fins, they were completely gone. And I just saw a really gruesome sight. And so at that point, I, I recognized that I was in really kind of a life and death scenario. I knew right then and there that, that my life was in danger. My dad dove into the water and swam out to me. And I said, my feet are gone. We, we have to go. Just like as calm as I, as I just said it. And so my mom did a great job of getting the boat around. They got me onto the boat. And then we just hauled ass back to shore and, you know, it was, uh, it was obviously a, a super traumatic event and it was, uh, something that I've done a lot of work around subsequently, what I saw that day and, and all of that. But I will say that it was one of the most kind of serene moments in my life. I don't know. A lot of people serene. say, you know, yeah, you know, a lot of, a lot of people say, well, you went into shock, obviously. And I, yeah, maybe I did. Uh, or maybe I didn't, I, you know, I, I don't know what it was, but there was a calmness that came over me on that ride back that was otherworldly. You know, I, I felt this really kind of this sense of calm, and um, this sense of peace. And I recognized that death was close, but there was this instinctually something just kicked in that was like, I just can't die here uh, in my mom's arms. And so I, I just was hyper focused. You talk about bringing it into, into the present. That really forced my hand there. So I was just hanging on for life and my parents, you know, being physicians probably saved my life that they were doctors. So that yeah, was a, it was a wild day and just one of those freak accidents that, that just happened, you know. I can't imagine the trauma of what you went through, but also your parents and obviously your mum because she's the one that turned on the boat and that's what caused this to happen. So how has she coped with all of this? Yeah, no, it was um, obviously so incredibly difficult for her, especially early on. But she had the willingness to to do the work. And so she we both dove into therapy pretty quickly thereafter, right after the accident and rolled our sleeves up to do the work. You know, she 
at the end of the day, what it came down to was, you know, finding that forgiveness for herself, you know, and, and I, and it was a process for me as well to forgive her. I think initially I had this, I was angry towards my mom, but I, I didn't share that. So I suppressed that and didn't speak openly about, you know, my feelings about the accident and my anger towards her. And I think that was really a detriment to my overall recovery because like the physical wound was one thing the physical wound was way easier compared to the emotional psychological wounds that, that I sustained. You know, think about that. Like I lost my legs that paled in comparison to the emotional grief and trauma that, that I went through. Mm. So once you got to the hospital that day, what happened then? Yeah. So I was, um, I was airlifted. So I flew in a helicopter from the keys, uh, which is, Really, I went to a really small hot level of hospital that couldn't handle that level of trauma. So I was airlifted to Miami where I underwent three surgeries, but my first surgery took place immediately right after I, I flew in from the Keys. And I was in the hospital for about 17 days, 16 days in total. That's not long, 17 days. Yeah, it, it wasn't because I, I was, you know, I was young. I was healthy otherwise. I mean, I was really healthy. I was, I healed really quickly. But that's where sort of the foundation came into it, right? Is about 10 days into my stay, I recognized, you know, as this able-bodied kid that's all of a sudden been put into this situation where his life's turned upside down, I had not thought much about the disabled community. I had not thought much about the reality of kids and prostheses, right? I'd never been confronted with that. So that's where I really launched into the foundation was there in the hospital, recognizing that kids here in the States don't get access to prosthetics sufficiently. I said, look, this is a problem and we are going to do something about it. Like it was that simple. So that was a big part of my, my journey too. And this is all while you're still in hospital, recovering from your own legs being amputated and you're only 16 years old and you're looking at these kids and saying, I want to help them. Yeah. How does a 16-year-old do that? I know, right? And it's weird because I, I look at 16-year-olds today and I go, you're a baby, you're an infant, like, and they're so like self-absorbed and they're on TikTok and their phones and they're on like all this nonsense. Yeah. You know, really it, it wasn't, I think it's a product of a couple of things. I think it's a product, I'm a product of the environment in which I grew up, right? I grew up with these parents that said, you've been given a lot, you're very lucky. It's incumbent upon you to like use that for good. And so I think that was instilled in me as a kid I learned about this problem. I learned that kids don't have access to prosthetic devices. I met those kids. I was impacted by those kids and I took action. It was like as simple as that. And then I had the love and support around me. I had family, friends, and then I had the relief to know that I would always be able to afford the prosthetics that I needed to like go do the things I love to do. So it was like these, the perfect storm, it, not that it made it easier, but I think that's how that was able to be cultivated. You know, that was able to be created there in the hospital was like, I just got to fix the problem. This could be a problem. Let's be a part of the solution. Like it really wasn't like angels didn't visit me in my sleep. And it wasn't this big heroic endeavor to think. And I think that's important to remember, like for a lot of people out there that may be listening, it's like, I didn't set out on this thing thinking like we're going to change the world and we're going to like experience all the things that I've been able to experience. It was simply a, this is wrong. What do I need to do to make it right? And then let's go do that. Like it was pretty straightforward. Straightforward. <laughs> I'm not sure about straightforward. And it wasn't always, it wasn't always straightforward. Like my own journey has been like far more, um, you know, circuitous at times, right? Like there's been like, there've been times where 
um, there have been really hard times. There have been really, really dark times. There have been really times of despair and grief and sorrow and pain. Like that's been a part of my journey too. Like it hasn't always been sunshine and puppy dogs. I'm not just like some superhuman that just said like, you know, that didn't experience pain and, and loss. Like I experienced those things. I also experienced the joy and relief and, and triumph of like being of service for kids and making a difference and making an impact in their lives. You know? Can you tell us a bit about the particular kids in the hospital that influenced you? I think there was one particular boy that yeah. had burns. Sure. It was an eight-year-old boy named Larry, and I'll never forget him. I have no idea where he is today. I would. Oh, you haven't seen him since? Not since I left that hospital. But I'll tell you, he was really the, he himself wasn't an amputee. So he was an eight-year-old boy that was living in foster care, and he was playing with a box of matches. And he was wearing a sweater and he lit the matches and his whole body caught on fire. So he had third degree burns on 80% of his body, I think. Oh. And this kid was, was not an amputee, but like this kid was by himself alone. There was no one around him. There was no one there. And like the stark contrast, like here I am with friends, family, all of this support. And I'm like, asking the doctors like what's the deal why like where is everyone it just i couldn't i couldn't calculate why that was the case and it really just impacted my soul like it really just like hit me um, that this kid was left to navigate all of this by himself uh and that was unimaginable and so that's what started sort of the ball rolling in terms of starting the foundation did you meet amputees as well while you're in the hospital yeah, I did. And I, and I met amputees again, like I didn't, I didn't have any experience with amputees before my accident. And I met a little girl um, that was just wheelchair bound and her legs had been amputated years before. And so that was where I started asking the questions about, you know, why, why is it that she's not walking? Why is it that she isn't up? Why is she still in a wheelchair? And I learned that it was because she just couldn't afford them. And I thought, that's ridiculous. Like, we're leaving kids in wheelchairs when there's an alternative, but we're but money is what's preventing them from having access to their childhood. And so that's that's so the combination of her and Larry was like something was gonna happen. And so we we started having conversations. It it struck my soul. It hit my it like it pained me in a place that I hadn't experienced up to that point in my life. And so that's how the foundation was born, was those those two kids. So obviously you're in the US and your system over there is a little bit different to ours here, but can you explain to us a bit about what the system is like over there in terms of gaining access to prosthetics? Yeah, our system is laughable. I'll say, you know, I'll say that, you know, for around prosthetics, kids outgrow their prosthetics every 12 to 18 months. If they're lucky enough to have insurance, they will get access to what we, what we call like primary devices. So they'll, They'll get the leg or the arm. They'll get the leg that enables them to walk from point A to point B. That's that's covered generally. What's not ever covered are the secondary devices, the devices that they need in order to run or to climb uh, or to swim, the things that kids need to be kids. That's never, ever covered by insurers here in the U.S. So that's where we come in. A majority of the stuff that we're doing for kids is we're paying for these secondary activity limbs that enable them to do the stuff that kids need to do to have active childhood. So 
yeah, part of our work is around insurance companies and holding them accountable and saying, hey, this this needs to happen. You guys need to to pay for these. But in the in the interim, that's what we're doing is we're paying for these these legs that enable kids to to be active and healthy and to be children. And how about replacement legs? Are they not covered either? Yeah, so uh, it, it depends. They're not ever on the activity legs. So, you know, if a kid's outgrowing them once a year, maybe 18 months, you know, my legs are $25,000, my activity legs. So parents, you know, are shelling out an exorbitant amount of money every year, year and a half in order to give their kid the opportunity to run. Uh, and that to me is unacceptable. So that's what we do is we make the commitment to our kids when we bring them on, we will support them until they reach adulthood. So until they're 18 years of age, they don't ever have to worry about prosthetic coverage. I'm presuming that it also depends on what type of prosthetics are needed because your prosthetics are below the knee, but I'm presuming that if a knee is also needed to be included, that it's going to be more expensive to include the knee. And like, I remember hearing an interview not long ago with one of our Paralympians over here, and he was saying that his legs cost something like $300,000 Australian. And obviously they're going to be top of the range, but I mean, there's not many people that could afford to, to keep doing this. Like, how often did you say that the kids' legs need to be replaced? A year, 18 months max. So yeah, every so single year. Money. Yeah, I mean, imagine that. So my legs are, yeah, $25,000, $27,000. So imagine a family, who do you know that can pay $27,000 out of pocket every single year for the next 18 years? I don't know many people. Yeah. You know, so. And obviously we're saying legs, but it could also be upper limbs as well. But yeah. if the child is in a wheelchair because they don't have access to prosthetics, there are some medical complications that can come along with this, aren't there? Yeah. What sort of issues could there be could there be an arise if a child is wheelchair bound as opposed to being up and active with prosthetics? Well, and that's what's so infuriating is that there's there's clear data, there's clear research that says if they're immobile and they're non-ambulatory, there's all kinds of health concerns that emerge later down the line. So just from a developmental standpoint, being wheelchair bound, there's all kinds of psychological things that can develop, you know, really intense depression, you know, just, I mean, intuitively, it makes sense that um, there would be sort of, you know, developmental issues there. Uh, but then you think of all of the, the health concerns too, in addition to the mental health side of things like, you know, there's a much higher uh, incidence of like obesity, high blood pressure, like all there's all kinds. The data is so clear that we if we don't give these kids access to the opportunity to have the prosthetics to walk and to move, they develop all kinds of secondary comorbidities that just can really be devastating uh, in the long run. And not to mention quality of life. I mean, there's there's sort of the very clear quantitative side of things. But like, let's look at the qualitative side, like here we are, like we have this technology that's that's available that exists that enables kids to do things uh, like, quote, normal kids, whatever that means. But we just are, we're not giving them access because they just don't have the funds to afford them. So yeah, I mean, it's clear. It, it, it's crystal clear that prosthetics overwhelmingly improve quality of life for young amputees. So after you left the hospital, you went back to school. What was it like for you going back to school now with prosthetics? Yeah, you know, so my accident obviously happened while I was in high school. So I was 16. So everybody that knew me before my accident with legs was still there, right? So it was a hard transition. There were some, there were some 
friends that were uncomfortable with it or that didn't know what to say, you know, 16 year, like kids are awkward. So, you know, some of my friends were awkward and some of my friends, you know, but they were loving and encouraging and supportive. What was difficult, what was really hard for me was when I went off to college because no one knew me anymore as Jordan that was able-bodied. They mm. only knew me with a physical disability. And yeah. so I had this sense of what this real identity crisis, right? This real identity, like this real, uh, yeah, it, it was hard. And I felt like I felt a lot of shame. Like I had a lot of body shame around my prosthetic. So I would wear pants in the, in the dead of summer. Like it would be a hundred degrees Fahrenheit and I would be wearing pants because I was so ashamed of my body and I was so ashamed of people pointing and staring uh, and making comments. So that's been a big part of my, my recovery has been like reducing that shame around having a physical disability. How long do you think it took you to be able to accept your body the way it is now? Well, that presumes that I fully accept it now. I, right. Like, I I mean, I think, I think I'm, I'm obviously I'm way, I'm, I've done a lot of work to come to a place of integrating that and acceptance around it. But that doesn't mean there are times, there are still times where I have difficulty with people staring because people do like people stare and people will come up to me and say, you know, what happened to your legs? And, you know, so there are times where I still have challenges, but it took, several years and a lot of work and a lot of tears and a lot of a lot of emotional energy to to come to a place of acceptance around it but it's better it's better and the work the work has been worth it oh that's great to hear so while you were studying at school and during college you I'm presuming that you were doing the foundation on the side how long did it take from the time that you started the foundation in the hospital to the time that you had your first child and were able to give them prosthetics um, so I think from inception in the hospital to our first kid walking was this little girl named Elena that was a seven-year-old that was unbelievable. You'll never forget. Uh, uh, never, ever, ever, <laughs> ever, ever, ever. So precious. It was about 18 months, maybe oh, a little less. Oh, that's not very long. Months. Yeah, yeah. It Didn't was waste any like, time. No, this, well, a lot of that is like the community really rallied behind it. The, the community said like, Hey, like this makes sense. And so that made our lives easier from a fundraising standpoint. And so we saw this little girl and I forget, her provider had said like, we may need assistance for this leg. And we were like, yeah, that's, that's the one hundred percent. And it was incredible. Top, top five moments of my life was seeing her walk for the first time because we had like worked so hard to raise this money. And I'd just been through obviously my own experience and had just experienced this massive loss. And so it was really a moment of like fulfillment and gratitude and appreciation for just all of the effort, all of the energy, all of everything. It all just came to life there. It was like this one little girl was like the embodiment and personification of all of that stuff. And so as you can imagine, it was a very tear filled uh, moment watching her walk and, and like just be the angel that she is. Do you think it helped you and on your own recovery as well, having this foundation to focus your energy on? I yeah, I think in a lot of ways it helped uh, because it, it really it really hammered home like perspective, the value of perspective of like I may have lost my legs relative to a vast majority of the population. Like I really had it made, you know, so perspective gratitude around like, man, I am so grateful to have access to the stuff that I need. I'm so grateful to have the support around me that that most of these kids don't have. But I will say that there's like the other side of that coin, because I would say 
Jordan, you're not allowed to feel pain. You're not allowed to feel grief over your loss because you got it made relative to these kids. But I did. I had a right to feel loss and pain and angry and sad. And so it, it, it it helped in some ways. It hurt in some ways. So, yeah. To be able to see that perspective at such a young age, like we were saying before, is is incredible. And then to actually follow through with it as well. Like, what were your parents saying in all of this? Like, were they kind of like, you know, Jordan, maybe you should focus a bit on yourself to start with? Or like, what was their take on this and what you wanted to do? No, they were just, they were like all on, they were completely on board and like had my back and said like, okay, if that's what you want to do, like, that's what we'll do. And so they threw themselves in headfirst also into like forming this thing and getting this thing started because it takes a lot. Like it's a lot to file all the necessary paperwork and the necessary things to get, you know, a nonprofit status here in the States. It's a lot of work. And so they just kind of threw themselves headfirst into it. So they didn't caution me. Part of me kind of wishes that maybe they had, you know, (laughs) like, Hey, hold on. Like, let's look at our own stuff here real quick. But they didn't. And they just, again, they just did the best that they could with what they had at the time. Um, And they thought that was the best thing. I thought it was the best thing at the time. So, yeah, they were uber supportive. So after college, what did you do? I moved to Europe for five years, four years. Yeah. So I I was still doing the foundation after college, kind of, you know, part time. I was living in a different city. And so it was hard to be fully engaged. And I was a student. So it was hard. But I was in Europe for a couple of years working in venture capital, private equity stuff, which was great. It was fun. It was an awesome experience, but it wasn't fulfilling that, that hole in my soul. Like there was a part of me that was like, this really isn't what I'm meant to be doing, you know? Um, And it took me still even more years from then to really kind of come to find like, I'm going to do what I was put on this earth to do, which is the foundation. Are you someone that believes that things happen for a reason? Like, are you saying that this is your purpose in life? And I'm presuming that if the accident didn't happen, then the foundation wouldn't be here either today. Um, I've also heard you say that if you could go back, you wouldn't change it. Like, is that true? A hundred percent. No, no question. Like, no question. I know that's got to sound so weird and so crazy. I look at the trajectory of my life with, you know, with the accident, without the accident. And then I look at the trajectory of my life since that day. And it is not even close uh, what my choice would be. Like, I'm getting back in that water. If I if I had the ability to go back to August 16th of 05, I'm saying, dude, this is going to suck for a little bit. I promise. Like, it's really going to suck. Just hop in that water because oh the trajectory of my life, like, I've been able to experience things. I've been able to meet people. I've been able, like, I, I, I'm truly doing what I feel like I was born to do what I was created to do and what I was kept on this earth to do. And I think when you've got that in your corner, like I hop out of bed and I just go get after it every day, every day. And that doesn't mean it doesn't suck at times. Like there's times where I still feel angry. I feel sad, you know, the whole range of human emotion, but yeah, there's no question. I'm, I'm not changing it for anything. That's incredible to hear you say that. Like after going through so much suffering and then to be able to find a greater purpose because of it is just amazing. Just yeah. out of curiosity, what do you think you'd be doing if you hadn't had the accident now? I don't know. Something stupid. Oh. Probably like <laughs> selling insurance or some nonsense like that. I don't know. I don't know. I'd probably like 
I do. I would. I probably would have gone like the business route. I grew. I studied international business in college, so I probably would have been working some stupid job, wearing a suit every day, into the office, bitching about my boss, mm-hmm. being hollow in the inside. Yeah, mm. I don't know. And also, out of curiosity, have you been back on a boat since? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've been back on boats for sure. I just haven't. I haven't been scuba diving since. Uh, since my accident, like. I'd probably consider it. Oh, really? Um, yeah, I'd consider it, but I don't know. I don't have legs, so that makes scuba diving a little more difficult. So, oh, yeah, yeah. You know, but yeah, definitely have been back on boats for sure. After you traveled, when did you start to spend all of your energy on the foundation? Like, was that um, after you came home? Yeah, so after I came back home, I was working with my brother who builds houses here in Nashville, and it was great, but again like there was that hole inside me there was that thing that like i just couldn't itch and i don't know what it was and eventually i i just said hey it just kind of occurred to me i want to work with the foundation full-time and there was pushback like there were people within the organization that were like we don't think it's a good idea you know maybe you shouldn't do that keep doing it part-time within the foundation uh, yeah yeah on the board oh. that were that why were didn't they resistant. want you to do it i you know i don't know i don't know I don't know. They're not with us anymore. I'll tell you that. Oh, surprise. Uh, so they got the, you know, uh, so they're not a part of it anymore. But yeah, I, I just, I, I had a lot of fear around it. And I said, you know, like, no, this is what I want to do. Like this is, and this is what we're going to do. And there were plenty of people that supported that decision and they had the faith that I would execute and, and get it done. And I mean, the proof's in the pudding too. Like before I came on board, we had 12 kids that we supported, 12. So when was this up till? Uh, up until like a year and a half ago. Oh, not that long ago. Okay. Not long ago. We had 12 kids. Today we have 74 kids. And then we have like 46 internationally. On top so, of the 74? Yeah. When you say yeah. international, like are they from third world countries? Where are they from? Yeah, so we have this awesome partnership with an incredible organization called A Leg to Stand On, which provides prosthetic devices in the developing world. Um, and so we've partnered with them and we've committed some funds, not a lot, but some funds to helping get prosthetic devices to kids in developing world. And it's been an awesome partnership, but it's also helped us grow impact. So we have 74 kids here in the States and I don't even know where it is today, uh, internationally, but it, 40 plus. Oh, that's incredible. So these have all been, or most of them have been in the last year and a half. Yeah. So I... I somehow doubt that those people that doubted uh, will listen to this and will hear oh, this. But if they oh, they'll be just angry about knowing know. all of this. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's been incredible. I mean, it's, and I just see the opportunity. I, I don't know. I'm like a, I'm a, a obnoxious optimist most of the time. And like, for me, I just see so much opportunity. I never sit down with somebody and say, hey, this is what we're doing. We provide prosthetic devices to kids so that they can live active lives and be kids. I've never heard anyone say, oh, I don't, I don't believe in that or I don't want to yeah, support of course. that. Everyone goes, oh, how, how can I be a part of that? How can I support it? You know, so I, I think we're just beginning to like really get our stride here. Um, and next year, I hope to add maybe 100 kids in addition to the 74 that we already have. Wow. So one of my questions was, what do you hope for the future? But would that be to just keep growing and helping more and more kids? Yeah, I mean, for sure. I want to keep growing, you know, which means I want to keep adding more kids. 
I do ultimately, I think the system around prosthetics and the way insurance covers them is broken. I think it's fundamentally flawed. And so my hope is that we can pass some legislation or pass into law something that holds insurance companies accountable and says it's it's imperative that you guys pay for prosthetic devices so that kids can be active. Because I don't want to just continue to put a Band-Aid on the issue. I want to just eradicate it entirely. So mm. ideally, when we speak next time, well, when we connect down in Melbourne in, in three or five years, mm-hmm. that the, we'll, no kid in America, we won't have a single kid in America because we'll have eradicated the need for the foundation to exist here. We'll still be doing the work internationally so we can put our heads together on, on what that looks like. But um, ultimately, I want to put myself out of business here in the States. Would you consider going into different avenues as well? Because before you were saying that the physical aspect is only one aspect and then there's a psychological and and there's different aspects that obviously come along with an injury like this. Is that something that you'd consider going into as well? Definitely. That's a great point. And that's a big thing that we're looking at for next year is developing more services for our families and creating a broader network of young amputees living with limb loss in their families. What's clear is that Providing a prosthesis is one element out of out of a whole slew of, of obstacles that exist for these kids. So uh, a lot of the work that we're going to move into next year will continue to cover the prosthetic device, but a, a big piece is going to be around mental health, uh, peer-to-peer mentorship, so connecting families and kids with one another um, so that they can lean on each other and learn from each other's experience to develop a stronger sense of community. Because it's clear that, that the prosthetic is, is just one piece um, that we've got a lot more that we need to address. Yeah, I saw recently that you had your annual golf tournament and your family reunion where all the kids came together and they looked like they were having so much fun and it's like you're this big rock star that they all looking up to and, and yeah, it seems, does seem like a really big family, everyone together. What is this like for you? Like, I'm not even really sure what the question is here, but... Yeah, it, just, it all seems like a lot of fun. I don't know what the question is, but here's the answer. It's awesome. It is incredible. I mean, because it's because it is. It's a family. I know our backgrounds may be very different and we may look very different, but at the end of the day, we've experienced massive trauma, massive loss, or you know, we've experienced this this kind of common pain or this common situation. And so to be able to connect with these kids to remind them of like their inherent value, their inherent worth, to see what they do. Like you want to talk about resiliency, you know, we need to look to our children more often to see what resiliency is. Like these kids, you give them an opportunity and they they go get at, they go get after it. So being around that is really kind of an intoxicating thing. And it's a thing that inspires me in a lot of ways to keep doing a lot of work for them because that's what I do every day. I I wake up and I try to have an impact in their lives, whether they know it or not. So being able to see them all connect and to see how powerful and meaningful that is for them and for the families, it tells me that we're on the right course and that we're doing the right thing. And so now we just got to grow that number from the 21 that we had last weekend to 121 next year and continue to grow out this community because it's a, it's a really powerful thing to be a part of. And I think them seeing you as well, like having seeing someone that's gone through what they're going through, I think would have a big impact on them as well. Like it's one thing to have someone that's really rich and throwing money at, at a cause. And I mean, that's great too, but having you who's actually been through the same thing and, you know, they seeing that you're living your life now and how you're living it. And I mean, they can probably look at you and think, well, I can do that too. 
I, I think so. I think a lot of them just see me as like an old man. Oh. I'm, like, yeah, I'm like 32. So like for them, they're like, who's this old guy? But I think you're right. I mean, I think. Uh, well, their parents would say it. Yeah. No, I, I think you're right. I think the kids see it. I think they see it's really easy to talk the talk. It's a different thing to walk the walk. And so when I say things like, I promise you it gets better. I know that from lived experience. And I think they recognize that. And I think the families recognize that. And I think that, uh, so yeah, I think it is powerful for them to see it. Yeah, it is powerful. And then, like, what's amazing though, is that it goes both ways. Like it's really powerful for me to see them. Like I draw a lot from them and I'm sure they draw a lot from me. So it's this mutually beneficial, like awesome thing where we just help support each other. And we say, you know, lean on me if you need to, or let me hold your hand and walk down this path with you. Cause I've experienced this before. I'm just a little further along that path, but like, I'm here to help shepherd you along this path too. It's massive. I mean, it's big. Oh, it's beautiful. Yeah. So one thing I have noticed is that you seem to have adopted the phrase press on. Um, can you explain to us why you chose that phrase, why you use it and what it means to you? You ask like um, really legendary questions. Oh, like I get like, there's thank like a, you. Really, uh, like I get asked a lot of the same questions all the time. I have never been asked that ever. Like, where Are you does serious? Press it's on press everything. On? Like the I first know. email I got from you had in big capital letters, press on. I was <laughs> thinking, oh, this is interesting. And then like your inst- all your Instagram posts and I think even your Instagram handle is press on. It, my Instagram handle is literally press on JT. No one yeah. has ever asked me why press on. Crazy. Uh, so- and I'm also wondering whether the running man in your logo uh, with the arrow is also about the same press thing. Press on. Can you explain, please? Yeah, absolutely. So I... um. So when I was in the hospital, this football coach, this American football coach came to see me and he signed it, press on Larry Coker. And I thought, wow. Oh, so you stole it. I stole it, 100%. Larry Coker, <laughs> you're out there. I stole it from you. I owe you, I owe you some, some coin for that, that, that saying. I, but it like stuck out to me. I don't know. I just love this idea of like, press on. Like whatever it is that you're going through, like press on. And so the first fundraiser we ever had was these blue bracelets that just say press on JT. And so it's something that I've just kind of adopted. And I, I think it says a lot in so few words, like this idea of just like, regardless, just press on. And that's the really important thing. It's like my accident was so traumatic and so terrible. I am not the only person to have ever experienced loss and sorrow. And you know what I mean? I think it's very much the human condition um, that we're going to experience loss and grief and pain at some point in our lives because we're human. And so this idea of just like, it gets better and this um this idea of just like pressing on pressing through it is something that's appealing to me and something that i've had to really lean on throughout throughout my recovery i mean at, at 16 at 20 at 30 like throughout my life this idea of just like press on it's, it's and it's a big part of what i do and like you said before seeing the opportunities in things as well oh absolutely and like and what's so clear to me is like in real time, I have no idea what's good or bad, right? So like the day of my accident wouldn't change it. One of, in many, in some ways, one of the greatest days of my life in terms of what it's given me an opportunity to do what I do in my life. Mm. And also one of the worst days of my life and I've experienced so much pain and grief and sorrow. So this idea of like not knowing in real time if something's good or bad is, has been a really big part of kind of my, my growth. What else have you learned 
from the accident and since then? Number one, it's it's okay to like not be okay. Mm. Sometimes it's okay to like be down. It's okay to be, you know, it's like it's it's just okay to not be okay. Like a big thing that I thought initially was like, I've got to put this mask on and I've got to be brave. I've got to be courageous. Like some days I just don't have the courage. Some days I just don't feel as brave as other days. So sometimes it's just okay to not be okay. Ask for help. Ask for help. Like I've only gotten to this point in my life because I've had a lot of love and support from people around me that I've been had somehow the courage to ask them for their help. So ask for help, leaning on people in times when you, when I really have needed it. The value of like perspective and gratitude, like as an, as in terms of action, like it was a really emotional week for me last week, like seeing all of these kids, like it was really emotional because this thing was born out of such trauma and loss for me personally, but look at what has come out of it. Like look at what has happened as a result of that loss. And so it's helped me to make sense of, of that tragedy. So I've learned a lot and I continue to learn a lot, like each and every day, like this thing is a big learning process. Like by no means do I have it figured out or do I have the answers, but like, I'm just doing the best that I can today. And that's okay. You know, you're incredible. Like absolutely incredible. (laughs) So how can people support you and the Jordan Thomas foundation? I think that the biggest and easiest way is to come sort of join the JTF family. Uh, It's a wild and crazy family, but um, come visit us on the website and come learn about our kids and get involved by reaching out, like reach out to us. Uh, Come visit us at jordanthomasfoundation.org. There's great stuff there about, you know, with the stories of the kids and what we're doing. And then our social media has really improved a lot and is really an awesome sort of, it sort of peels back the, the curtains in terms of like what's going on in these kids lives. So if you're ever in need of some inspiration or ever in need of some, uh, a feel good story, Jordan Tom at Jordan Thomas foundation on Instagram is an incredible follow because we just show what these kids are doing. And it's hard to have a frown on your face when you see like our kids dress up for Halloween. It's unbelievable. Uh, or you see a kid take a step for the first time in their life with a prosthetic. It's, I guarantee you, you won't have a frown on your face at the end of it. Oh, I 100% yeah. agree. Because <laughs> yeah. that happened to so, me. It's like that so, photo the other day of you carrying that boy and then and then he was walking. And it was like, wow. Four days later, that was on, no. Yeah. Three days later, he was, you know, had never walked, had lost, was born without all four limbs. I'm holding him in Nashville on Saturday. On Tuesday, he's taking the first step of his life ever. Oh, it gives you chills. And it's like, even when I, I heard your story, I remember thinking that it really renews my faith in mankind. Like, yeah. It really does. Like having been through such a traumatic experience yourself, but then being able to see the perspective and see past yourself to that these other people need help and then being able to help them. It really does. I know it probably sounds a bit corny, but yeah, it does. And I will put all of the details of the Jordan Thomas Foundation in the show notes for this episode so that everyone can go and check it out. And I do have one final question that I ask everyone at the end of their interviews, if you're willing to answer. Yeah. If you could go back in time and give your younger self one piece of advice, what would it be? You're precious, you're valuable, and you're worthy. Oh, I love that. You know, I would, I would say that to myself over and over and over. 
because it's amazing. I, you know, it's easy to look at the work that we're doing and, and I appreciate your kind words and I think it really is incredible work. Um, but there's still times where I feel like I'm not doing enough or I'm not, I'm not doing enough or I'm not enough as a person, you know, and, and that's, that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. So I think anything that we can do that I would hammer home, just you're precious, you're valuable and you're worthy. And I would say that to everybody that's listening. You're because you breathe, like that's enough. Like you are enough as you are, period. No more. Wow. Wow. That's all I have to say. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with me today and with everyone listening today. It's been an absolute pleasure. And I wish you and the foundation and obviously the kids are all the best for the future. Thank you. Thank you. So grateful for the opportunity. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Inspirational Tales. If you're enjoying the podcast, I'd love it if you could please share it with your family and friends so that we can inspire more people. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts or iTunes, please don't forget to leave us a rating or a view and make sure that you have subscribed or followed the podcast on whichever platform that you are listening to it on so that you can stay up to date as new episodes are released. Thanks again and I look forward to you joining me for the next episode of Inspirational Tales.